You're listening to a message from the Winsboro Church of Christ. This is the Winsboro.Church podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or prayer requests, you can get in touch with us at any time through our website at Winsboro.Church. I've been following my transcript that's been printed in the bulletin. You will know that I changed my sermon. And if you say, what transcript? I'll know you didn't read your bulletin. Um... I wrote that on Monday because I had a busy week. On Well, I left here Sunday and went up to McAllister. And then Tuesday morning, drove back down here with a load and several people helped do that. And I greatly appreciate all the help because we got all of our stuff moved. It's in the storage building here. And then from there, Wednesday, I went over to where my mom lives in Cleburne, where my wife and kids are this morning. Uh, just outside of Cleburne, Texas, so about two and a half hours away. And then uh, we drove back up Thursday night to McAllister because we closed on Friday, sold our house, and then I drove back to Winsboro. So I knew before the week started, it's like, i got to get this transcript done Monday because I'm not going to have any other time. I'm going to be on the road all week long. So I did. I wrote the transcript. But as I drove and as the events of this past week unfolded with the George Floyd and uh, now the riots and the protests that have gone on um, I decided well I'm the preacher I get to decide what I preach on so I'm not going to do my transcript I'm instead going to do what I think is appropriate for today what I think of when often when things maybe like this happen and they happen far too often Uh, The story, the the parable of the Good Samaritan. And as we look at this, Luke chapter 10, if you haven't already turned there, you can go ahead. We're going to dig into this parable, dig into the question that prompted it, and we're going to see Jesus' amazing answer, in my opinion. Luke chapter 10. An expert in religious law up to test Jesus and ask an important question. How do I get eternal life? That is an important question. I'll say in that question, though, is a hint of maybe what's wrong with this expert in religious law. See, what comes out of this is the most important answer. We talked about that last week. So really, these two sermons go together. I should have thought to put them together to begin with. But last week we talked about the greatest command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Love your neighbors yourself. Whenever they ask Jesus, what's the most important thing we can do? That's what Jesus answered. We talked about that last week. This man asked a different question. what, What will get me into heaven? What will get me eternal life? And even there, you see the difference in the questions? One question was about God. One question, the one, what's the greatest command? What does God care most about? Good question. What can I get out of it? Not a bad question, but not as good. To ask, okay, how do I get eternal life? That's a good question, one we should ask, and one that as a church I hope that we address, because Jesus addresses it. It's addressed in so much of the New Testament especially, which, of course, we follow. It's not bad to ask, how can I get to heaven? But let me just challenge you with maybe it's a better question just to ask, what does God desire? And let that be our starting point. I know, yeah, heaven's waiting on us, and I can't wait to be there. With all of us, with all those who've gone on before and all those yet to come and, and all those that have 
been sanctified and made holy in the blood of Jesus Christ our Lord. I mean, it, eternal life will be glorious because Jesus will be there. But my goal isn't just get, get to heaven. My goal is how can I please my God? That should be our goal. So the question had the same answer as when they asked Jesus, what's the most important command? But this one started off a little bit with that hint of selfishness. And we all have hints of selfishness, so I'm not going to be, beat them up for this. But then we see it progress. After Jesus, Jesus turns the question back on him, what do you think? Jesus often responded to a question with a question. The man said, how do we get eternal life? Jesus says, what say you? You're an expert in the law. That's how he was regarded, a scribe, uh, someone that spent his life studying the law and making copies of the law. Somebody that if, what does scripture say? They didn't have the Bible on their nightstand. They had to, if you, what does scripture say? Well, let's go find a scribe, a person who spent his life studying it and not necessarily memorizing it all, but committing a lot of it to memory. And being familiar with it and what it says. And so Jesus, what say you? And the man responds with the right answer. Love the Lord your God, love your neighbors yourself. And Jesus says, right answer. He said, that's right. Do that and you'll live. Do that and you will receive. Life eternal is implied, I believe. That that, that, that is the core of how we please God and therefore can live with him forever. But, verse 29, there's two really significant, but however, kind of shifts in this parable, in this conversation Jesus has with this man. This is the first one. The first question's innocent enough. The first answer was good. Yep, good answer. Uh, You know, the Jesus stamp of approval. That's pretty good to get the Jesus stamp of approval. You answered right. But... Seeking to justify himself. Wanting to justify himself. He asked another question. And we kind of see in here, all right, the first part was just a setup. Now he's really getting into the meat of what he wants to discuss or what he wants to, um, maybe even he's anticipating an argument. I don't know uh, how, why he brought this to Jesus in the first place necessarily other than what we're told and that is, He wanted to justify himself. He wanted to be right. That's what the word justify means. To be righteous. He wanted to be the correct one. He wanted to be the one with the right answer. He wanted to be the one that could look back in his life and say, see, I've done exactly what God wanted me to do. Pat me on the back. Getting that first question. I get something out of it now, don't I? Don't I get eternal life? Very much having a me-centered, focused religion rather than a... God-centered one, which is so much healthier. But he says, but seeking to justify himself, he asked, who is my neighbor? First question, pretty obvious. Who's God? You know, as far as love, love God, love your neighbor. Well, love God, okay. This scribe knew God as much as anybody. And as far as studying scripture, could know him. He spent his life dedicated to being an expert in the law and understanding what Scripture said. So he knew God, but he wanted to know, okay, Jesus, what do you think? Who's my neighbor? And Jesus sees the problem in the question. Jesus sees the problem in the heart behind the question. 
And so rather than just answer the question, he gets at the problem and the question itself by telling a story. You can ask the wrong questions. I was told by one of my teachers in school, uh, there's no such thing as a bad question or a stupid question is actually how he worded it. Um, There's no such thing. Ask anything you want to ask. And I'd say, yes, definitely ask anything you want to ask, but be aware there are wrong questions. For instance, if I said, what color is the sky? I would imagine most of us would say, especially a nice sunny day like today, blue. The sky is blue, Colby. If I said, what number is the sky? How would you answer that? Well, the problem wouldn't be in the answer. The problem's in the question. The sky isn't a number. And we learn our colors and our numbers and our alphabet and all those things when we're little, but they're not the same. They don't apply the same by any means. To ask what number is the sky, oh, let's work on the question before we can give the answer. And that's what Jesus does. Let's work on the question. Because the question you ask, who is my neighbor, is coming out from the wrong angle. And that's what this story conveys. So Jesus answered this question with his story, and then he's going to follow up with another question at the end. A man was going down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, fell among robbers. They stripped him, they beat him, left him for dead on the side of the road. And who comes walking by but a priest? A priest. happens to be strolling on by. What does the priest do? Now, here's the thing. Just like this expert in the law, the priest would have known that command, love God, love your neighbor. He knew it. He knew that right answer and could give it back, potentially. They had been reciting, love the Lord your God with all their heart, soul, and might for since they, they could talk. They recited it daily. And so this priest knew the answer, but what does he does? He walks by on the other side. And what's implied is that man laying there is not my neighbor. Then a Levite comes by. Same thing. Passes by. And both the priest and the Levite were servants in the temple, had religious jobs, worked at a church, so to speak, we could say. Yet they both passed by on the other side. And... This isn't a joke by any means, but it's almost set up a little bit like a joke. A priest and a Levite and a minister walk into a bar, you know, something like that. It is, he's setting them up. These are the priest and the Levite. All right, what comes next? Well, here Jesus doesn't tell a joke. He uh, blindsides them. You would think a priest, a Levite, and maybe a scribe like himself, or a teacher in the law, an expert in law, a Pharisee, a Sadducee. I mean, he could have picked lots of other religious people, you know, to come by next, but who does he pick? A Samaritan. That's how I would have said it. Not how Jesus said it, but how a common Jew would have said Samaritan. Scum of the earth. Those whom they had utmost contempt for. Because the Samaritans had abandoned the true faith, had abandoned the true holiness and purity that a Jew should have continued on in. And and the Samaritan, they had a different scripture. 
They, uh, uh, they had a different scripture with different emphasis. And Jesus had pointed out, we talked about this several weeks ago, to the Samaritan woman who asked, which one's right? And Jesus said, oh, the Jews have it right. Not just to say Jews have it right, he of course said, but the point is to worship in spirit and in truth. Not to be right, but rather to be humble before God. And that's what God desires from us, to worship in spirit and in truth. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. So all these, I guess, are falling in together. But this Samaritan, whom was despised and ignored and thought to be less than, comes along. He comes along and has compassion, unlike the priest and the Levite. See, the, what Jesus is trying to do with this parable is to overcome assumptions. A Jew heard the word Samaritan, and oh, the assumptions started to run. Uh, those people who don't really worship the right way, they, they, they don't really love God. They haven't been true to Scripture. They're not faithfully waiting on the right Messiah. They kind of had their own idea what the Messiah would be, but they weren't waiting on the right Messiah like the Jews were, of course, who missed the Messiah, but the Jews, especially in Jerusalem, those teachers of the law, scribes, Pharisees. But here is an assumption about, all right, this Pharisee, the scum of the earth, what does he do? He has compassion. And rather than walk by on the other side, goes up to him, starts to care for him. Starts to care for him in some amazing ways, even goes out of his way. Gets off his animal, puts the injured man on the animal after doctoring him with what little he had to doctor him with, oil and wine. Takes him to an inn where he can be cared for. Didn't have hospitals back then, but take him to an inn where at least he's got a bed, a place to stay, some food that can be brought to him until he regains his health and says, I'll pay for his stay. And if there's any extra beyond what this down payment is, I'll come back and I'll settle up later. An amazing show of hospitality and of compassion. And yet it's a Samaritan. And what would be a modern-day counterpart to a Samaritan? Um, I think a Muslim would not be a far stretch. You know Muslims believe in Abraham? Their scriptures point to Abraham. They just believe themselves to be the descendants of Ishmael. And Ishmael got the promise rather than Isaac. And, of course, beyond that, it starts to diverge wildly. And they don't believe in Jesus. They have their prophet Muhammad and cannot. Their faith is very incompatible with the idea that God would come in the flesh, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. But there's a connection way back. That's how the Jews were with the Samaritans. They both believed in Moses. The giving of the law, they just had two different versions. But different emphasis, different teachings, different rituals, different ways to worship. And think how we think whenever we hear the term Muslim. Think of the assumptions that start to roll through our head about what they believe, how they live, what they do. 
how even we might consider just them to be against us or us against them. And I'm, I'm not saying that the Muslim faith is just as good as Christianity. I wouldn't be a Christian if I thought that. I do believe that in Jesus Christ is the way to the Father. Absolutely. And that if you reject Jesus Christ, you cannot accept the Father. But you know what? When asked the question, who is my neighbor? Doesn't have to be a Christian. A Muslim could be my neighbor. Just like a Samaritan could be the neighbor of a Jew. Another thought, and why I started thinking about this more as the news cycle kept going and still is going strong, goodness, like Eric said, has fallen apart. And I see those pictures of those very angry, often young men. Although it's not just young men, but that's a good portion of them. Living maybe in the inner cities. In places that inherently we drive by on the other side. How many of us go the long way around a city like Dallas to avoid going through a particular neighborhood? I've done it. I found myself in an awkward, oops, I took a wrong exit, and I'm going down these streets, and I stick out like a sore thumb. And I'm getting looks that I don't necessarily know how to interpret, um, because I am out of place. That would be a Jew going into Samaria. And we see these angry young men, and... I don't have to agree with what they're doing by any means as far as the destruction of property, as far as, you know, crimes being committed. As Eric pointed out, I don't agree with that police officer by any means either. So I can, I can relate a little bit, not much, but maybe a little bit. I can say, well, that's something worth being angry about when it comes down to it. But do I approve of what's happening in our cities? Here's the thing. It's not about approval. The Jew didn't approve of the Samaritan. The Samaritan's still their neighbor. The Samaritan didn't approve of the Jew. But this Samaritan shows, proves, he's still my neighbor. Those people we see in the news, pictures, burning things, destroying things. I would say don't even worry about approval or not. They don't need your approval. They don't want your approval. They're not asking for it. But I would say I think they need a neighbor. They need somebody to care. They need someone to listen. They need someone to have compassion. And that's our job. That's what the Samaritan did. He saw this man and he had compassion and went to him. Being a neighbor has nothing to do with approval. And actually, Jesus gets to the end of his story and asks. But he, he asks a question, but he flips it. He doesn't say, now who is your neighbor? He actually says, who became the neighbor? See, the, question, the problem was in the question. This expert in religious law said, who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells this whole story and gets to the end, and he says... Who became a neighbor? Who are you a neighbor to? 
It's not about who is your neighbor. It's who are you being a neighbor for. That's what he asked him. Which of the three became a neighbor to the man? And the expert in religious law can't help but say, well, it's pretty obvious. No arguing with that. The one who had compassion. Well, what he actually says is the one who showed mercy. We think a lot about what we deserve or what somebody else might deserve. That should not be the case. Our job, Jesus says, go and do likewise. Go and be like that Samaritan. And if anything would have rubbed that guy the wrong way. Be like a Samaritan? Are you kidding me? We don't see how he responded, but I think... If he was like most experts and the Jews, like, why don't you just really tell me to be like a Samaritan? Or it would have burned them quite a bit. I don't like that. But show mercy to the people that need it. That's our job. Um, no, I appreciate it again, Eric's comment so much. You know, how, <laughs> how do you fix this? And this, what's led up to it for decades, centuries before, and where we're heading. How do we fix it? Big question. And I like Eric's response. Well, we follow God and let God fix it. The only one who can. We just do our job. And what's our job? Become a neighbor. Show mercy. To those that need it. And I'd say that police officer maybe needs some mercy too. That's hard to fathom. Justice needs to be done. I'm not, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't want to say that it doesn't, you know, God desires justice in the land. He desires wrong actions and those who do them to be held accountable. But in the midst of justice, a heart of mercy. And that's our job. Um, and I, what I encourage myself, again, I watch the news cycle, and who knows, who knows what's going to happen next week, and how this is going to play out. Oh, probably not good would be the only answer I can supply. Um, but how do we respond? What's our job? Be a Samaritan. Be somebody that we, maybe we have so many assumptions. Here's the thing. That's kind of cool. And I'll close with this. A lot of people anymore have assumptions about Christians. We're not always painted in the best light. People assume we're judgmental. Because we've maybe earned that reputation. People assume that... We want to tell other people how to live. Again, maybe we've earned that reputation as well. And so there's a lot of assumptions about what people would expect out of a southern, predominantly white, conservative church. And my thought is, We can change those assumptions just like the Samaritan did. 
And say, no, that's maybe something. We're not perfect. We make mistakes. And sometimes I can be judgmental too. And, but you know what? Let's focus on our one job here. Have compassion. Show mercy. That's what we need. That's what this world needs more of is that love, to love people like Jesus. Not because they deserve it. Not because they're right or they're wrong. Simply because it's our job. We don't just find our neighbors, we become a neighbor. Because we follow Jesus, who became a neighbor to us. And that's why we offer this invitation. Jesus Christ came and laid down his life for us. While we were still enemies, while we were still hostile to God, that's when Jesus became our neighbor. Loved us even more than he loved himself by sacrificing himself on our behalf. And just like the story of the Samaritan, when we receive that mercy, time to share that mercy. Go and do likewise. Mm-hmm.